Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Theology and Reality Podcast, Special Lent 2023 Book Club Edition. This year, we're reading Hind's Feet on High Places by Hannah Hernard, an allegorical spiritual classic that's been read by tens of millions of people over the last half century. We're so happy to be able to bring these special episodes to you completely free. But if you like what you hear and want to support the work we're doing over at the Theology and Reality Substack, consider becoming a paid subscriber. All our work is supported by readers and listeners like you, and we hope to be doing this for many years to come. A quick warning, there are spoilers ahead. So if you want to be surprised at home, feel free to hit the pause button and come back when you've read the corresponding chapters for each episode. Now, without further ado, here we go. All right, well, we're back with our Lenten book club after the, I think, success of our Advent book club, which was a lot of fun. So for Lent this year, we are reading a 20th century spiritual classic, Hind's Feet on High Places. Um, It's a book that I first read a couple of years ago, and I've been kind of waiting for a time to return to it. And because of the nature of the book, it seems like the perfect time to come back to this. Um, and I was also excited to share the book because on the one hand, it seems like from just doing a little bit of research, I guess a lot of people have read this book over the years, if millions of copies have been sold, but I'd literally never heard of this book before I came across it two years ago. And so I was kind of excited to share it with you and with, uh, you, the listener, So, I mean, you had never heard of this book either, right? No, I had never heard of it until Mm -hmm. you mentioned it. I had no idea what it was about or anything, but when we dove into it, I I can't believe that I've never read it before. Yeah, it's really interesting. So what we're going to do in this, this is going to be kind of a double episode because, you know, if you're subscribe to the the Substack or follow any of us on social media or anything like that. You knew that we were sick this past week. And honestly, you could probably still hear it in my voice, to be honest. Um, And so we couldn't get the first episode out last week like we planned. And so we're going to do kind of a a longer special double episode this time. We'll try not to go too long, obviously, uh, but we'll take a break in the middle. So we'll do chapters one through four in the first half and then chapters five through eight in the second half. And we'll, we'll take a break so it can be sort of easily paused or left off if you haven't made it all the way through the first eight chapters yet. But otherwise, and we'll try and keep, um, we'll try and keep spoilers from later chapters out of the first few chapters. If we can, uh, we'll do our best. So we'll just see what happens. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Uh-huh. So let's, let's dive in. Um, can I just ask though, why you chose this book for Lent? I think because it's, yeah, no, that's a really good question. It's similar in a lot of ways to other books that I'm sure people have read. So C.S. Lewis's Pilgrim's Regress is a kind of, is a similar allegory. Mm-hmm. Obviously there's kind of the classic, um, is it like a Puritan, uh, is it Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? Everyone's kind of heard of that, right? These sort of more on the face of it, allegorical sort of stories and novels and that kind of thing. Lewis is obviously famous for that, but this is the one that I like the most. And it's because the whole book is about purgation and spiritual ascent 
yes. this desire to be united with the one with the shepherd mm-hmm. and the pain right that that comes along with that desire as you know we'll talk about right this this union of pain and love and so it just seemed kind of like the perfect thing to do during lent and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about this as we go on, but it's, it's kind of, it's even, even though, and, and we'll also talk about this too, because it's, it's a curious thing for Catholics to choose during Lent too, because it's not a Catholic book. It's not a Catholic author, even though I think the book itself is extremely Very Catholic. <laughs> extremely Catholic yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but and if anyone's even remotely familiar with like Carmelite spirituality or John of the Cross's ascent of Mount Carmel, it tracks really well onto that kind of the classic Catholic three stages of the spiritual life, yes. I think really well. And so it just seemed to be a really nice read because it's also, it's a, it's a quick and easy read. And so it lets you read it sort of bit by bit over this, over these 40 days. So hopefully it's kind of like an easier read, especially, especially compared to the, the Ratzinger book that we did for, yeah for uh, Lent where, Advent, you know, it, yeah. Or, yeah, Advent, yeah, yeah, right. Where it's like 50 pages of, you know, Pope Benedict every week. And that was, that could be, you know, very dense. This is a much, hopefully much more, uh, enjoyable, breezy, easy read. Yes. So my initial thoughts are going into this when Josh first started reading it to me, we've been reading it out loud together. Um, was, it reminded me so much about St. John, what St. John of the Cross writes in The Dark Night of the Soul, The Spiritual Ascent to Holiness, and then also Teresa of Avila, Interior Castle. Like these sort, sort of like really deep movements in the heart of going deeper, deeper, higher, higher, like, and the, the purgative process, the, the pain, like you were talking about, that comes with these purgations of the heart as we grow in holiness and closer to the Lord. And how it's just this necessity to walk this path if we're going to seek Christ fully with like our entire life, like our entire life should shift and change. Um, but instead of focusing so much on the exterior, this is such a heart focus, which is exactly the Carmelite spirituality, right? Like we're moved by love um, to to this ascent up the high mountain, um, which is yeah, imagery that we see all the time in Catholic spirituality. Um, when you're looking at, you know, the, the medieval time period and like the, the great doctors of the church and how, and the great spiritual doctors of the church that talk about spirituality, like this is, these are the images that come. And that's why it's like, when we were reading it, I was just so struck. And I'm sure many of you listeners were too, of just relating to like different parts in your prayer life of like, Oh yeah, I've felt that before. You know, it was very relatable in that way. Did you feel that way? Yeah. I mean, so there's, there's something about this book that you might think, Oh, like, you know, a middle-aged man who's an academic how's he, you know, it might not be the, the best book for that person, but there's this deep tradition in the church of, male spirituality being almost romantic and it's not in the sense of you know contemporary christian worship music jesus is my boyfriend sort of romantic but like bernard of clairvaux for instance right writing you know in this kind of medieval um this sort of medieval romantic 
spirituality in the sense that they're very comfortable talking about love and desire in union with Christ and really identifying with the church's bridal nature. Mm -hmm. And so there's something about much afraid that I think hopefully I'd really, I really would be really shocked if there's anyone in the world who doesn't relate to much afraid, at least in some way. Yeah. Right. And so even though this book, right, it's about this young girl who wants to be with the shepherd, right? It's not this, it's not, you know, it's not a kind of like weird romantic thing, but there is a sense there's, there's a kind of romanticism in the sense that it's, it really draws you in and you really, you really relate to her desire to be loved. Mm, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yes. We it all, actually, I think. Yeah. Want that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, you know, and I think it's romanticism in that, like immediately I was thinking of the romantic period of art too. Like there's like such depth and, and, and so like, that's immediately what came to mind when you said that. I think it is a very romantic book in that sense. Um, in the sense of art, you know, like when you're thinking about it in that light. So this is good. This is good sort of like introduction. Like now we should get into it. Let's get into chapter one. Yeah, sure. So we're doing chapters one through four in this first section. Yeah. So that gets us. Well, I don't want to, I mean, because chapter four, I think is one of my favorite chapters of the book. So I don't want to jump right to it. Let's not jump. Um, But yeah, (laughs) we can, we can start just in chapter one. I mean, when you, so when we read through this, I mean, is there anything that stood out to you right away or that, like you said, that you related to, or that you thought, Oh, that was really, I really liked that about chapter one. Um, yeah. So I, I was really struck that it started out, um, in like, I guess the names of everything. I think that that's what struck me the most. Like, it's like, okay, it's much afraid. And she's uh-huh. in the Valley of Humiliation and she lived with her friends, Mercy and Peace in a white cottage and the village of much trembling, you know? Yeah. That's funny. I mean, it can like, it could throw you off at the first couple lines and you might think, Oh, like this is just really saccharine. This is really silly. Mm-hmm. Cause there's a sense in which someone could write this with all of the, it could have been really silly, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. but it's done in such a masterful way that it, it sort of draws you in right away. And it doesn't kind of, doesn't kind of play around too much with the allegory. It's very, a lot, of, it's very obvious mm-hmm. sort of mo- most of the time. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, nuance and complexity as you get on, but it's just very right. You know, it's right in your face. She's much afraid. Right. Um, yeah. So I was, I was definitely struck by the names. So I think there's at least two things in the first chapter that I think are are really interesting. The first is the, the, the key thing I think about chapter one, the most important thing that you find out about is the, the seed of love. Mm-hmm. that that she gets from the shepherd. So, and another another thing it's I've been trying to track and I think it's a little difficult, but I think the allegory because of the allegory you have to kind of figure out okay, like where does this track onto the spiritual life? She's already in the service of the shepherd. It tells you that, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like oh, she's just met him and just decides to follow him. She's she's been following him for a while. So, I mean, it's something she already knows the shepherd and right? it's kind of it's like the soul who already is a Christian, right? Is baptized, right? right? right. Already is just sort of living a normal kind of Christian life without any sort of desire to be pushed forward in any particular kind of way. But she finally gets sort of moved in this special way to have this conversation, to have this meeting and where it's where she gets the seed of love that he plants in her heart. Mm -hmm. And I think it's significant 
that sets the tone for the rest of the book, I think, that the seed of love is in the shape of a thorn. Yes, that struck me. And it pierces her heart, which is striking. Yeah, so it's it's that the seed is the thorn. And that's one of the major hallmarks and major things that you, you go through in this first chapter that pain and love are united. And she, she recognizes that and she knows that. And it's part of what has prevented her it seems from seeking to go further because it's something she intrinsically knows. She's very, she's acquainted with pain already Mm -hmm. because she's, she's crippled, right? We're told this she's small. She's doesn't, doesn't seem to be particularly charismatic. She is crippled. She's not an outcast, right? She has friends. She works in the village and that kind of thing, but she's clearly aware that if she says yes to this thing and she accepts this, that it's going to come with pain. Mm -hmm. And the, the shepherd says, well, yeah, but that's how it has to be. It's it's impossible for it to be otherwise. And I think that that's something that everyone's intimately familiar with, right? This idea that suffering and love go together in so many ways. Yes, I think, yeah, that's that's definitely a huge aspect of this. And I think the other part of this chapter that's really powerful is that it shows her weakness. So we see that in her body and how it's described. But also um, when they're talking about going to the high places, it's, you know, he is saying he, you know, you need Heinz feet to get there. And, and he has that, he has the strength. So already you're set up in seeing that it's in weakness. It's in this frailty that he's moved to be the strength of much afraid, right? Mm-hmm. And and to get her to where she needs. So it's already that sort of sense of um, how grace works. Yeah. So that's another reason why this, from the very first chapter, this is an, it's an extremely tra- traditionally Catholic book because the shepherd's very clear. And, and we'll, we'll see this more in later chapters. He'll remind her in, in different ways, but he doesn't, she doesn't just, she doesn't receive the seed, the seed of love and then just get carried up right? where the shepherd just does things for her. He's very clear, right? You, you need to be changed, right? He says that explicitly, he says you would have to be changed in order yeah. to do this. So it's not something that she's just allowed to do because it's as some kind of favor for her or that he carries her up which she, you know, repeatedly says she, you know, that would be nicer and that would be easier. Why mm-hmm. don't you just carry me up? You could do it. And he said, well, yeah, I could do it. But there's a dignity in the gift of grace where God allows us to be provident over ourselves and invites us in to work on our own with his grace. Right. So it's clearly not something she can do on her own from herself. Not in the least. She needs the grace of the seed of love. But once she's given that, right, then she's invited and called and showed and given the power to then, you know, work out her own salvation with fear and trembling with the grace of the shepherd. And of course the companions that, that will come along later. Um, and so this this is the first step in the purgative process mm-hmm. for much afraid. First, the pain mm-hmm. that she receives when she is given the seed of love, and then the pain of knowing it's something I'm going to have to cooperate in and participate in, and it's going to be hard to do. 
Yes. And actually on page nine, um, the shepherd says that you have to be changed before you could live on the high places. Um, but if you are willing to go with me, I promise to help you develop Heinz feet. So it's this, this movement of love. Like he, he meets, he meets us in this movement of love and meets us in our weaknesses. So I'm just like bringing this, you know, down to like, Mm -hmm. us, you know, in our weaknesses, in our frailty. And I think this is really important that the first step is in this humiliation, is in this recognizing our weakness, our frailty, our, the fact that he is everything and we are nothing compared to him. And, and that's when we can meet him humbly and he begins this like great work in our life, but we have to have that foundation of humility yeah, so maybe and maybe this is a good place just to mention the three, the three ages of the interior life. So, mm-hmm. in a lot of people are probably familiar with this from um, Father Garagou Lagrange's sort of classic spiritual work, Three Ages of the Interior Life, mm-hmm. and it's it's nothing new. So he was writing in the early 20th century, and he was you know attempting to combine the sort of philosophy and theology of Saint Thomas with the mysticism of the Carmelites, but it goes back essentially almost to the beginning of the tradition. Um, and the three ages or the three stages, or there's a bunch of different names that you could use for them are typically the purgative stage, the illuminative stage and the unitive stage. So stage one is purgation. Stage two is illumination and stage three is union, union with God. And so, you know, father Lagrange says, this is, this is something and something that he stresses, and that actually was something relatively new, at least explicitly, that this is not just for the great saints, mm-hmm. that this, these three ages are for literally everyone. Anyone who's baptized is going to go, is, needs to attempt and to strive to go through these three stages because that's the goal. The goal is union with God. Right. And so here it seems like chapter one introduces us to much afraid's uh, invitation to the first stage, mm-hmm. right? Cause it's an invitation to enter the age of purgation where she can be purified of everything that she needs to be purified of before she can begin to really understand the shepherd and understand what he's doing with her. And hopefully, you know, later on towards the end of the book, you know, without spoiling anything, right. We get to hopefully a stage of union. Right. Yeah. And you, you already see that promise of what's to come in, you know, on page 16, for instance, you go right into song of songs, which I loved how (laughs) song of songs is just strewn throughout. Yeah. The use of the, the use of the song of songs is a kind of both literary device and something that moves the plot along. And it's something that's just kind of seeded throughout the book is just really interesting, I think, because it, it doesn't it doesn't try and turn the Song of Songs into a kind of narrative that it copies. Right. But it uses these particular moments and shows how they relate exactly to what's happening in the narrative, which it, it I mean it's essentially doing Lexio Divina, mm-hmm. right? Within the the novel, right? Mm-hmm. It's how does these few verses of the song track onto what much afraid is experiencing in her interior life or in the events that are literally happening to her. Mm -hmm. And then in that sense, sort of as we're reading the book, 
right? The the literal things that are happening to Much Afraid allegorically track onto the things that happen to us in our interior life. Mm-hmm. So the use of it is just really. So for me, it just right away captures the the bridal nature of the soul and God, like like that sort of in seeking union with God, the bridal nature of that ascent. And then also um, how Song of Songs connects to the passion narrative, like that immediately comes to mind um, in how, again, coming back to this theme of love and pain. So what I mean by that is um, how Song of Songs is seen, like when you just read it, it's like this really lovely, wonderful, beautiful imagery. But what this book is doing is it's showing that it's within love that you're going to go through these various trials and how with grace and with God's help and in this process of the ascent, like those trials become um, a part of this sort of like marvelous of adventure in this ascent to holiness. Um, and and like a real, um, and, and it is this true love and it does capture that true love that we see in song of songs. It's so much deeper. Um, it shows the depth of love. It's something that'll pop up throughout the rest of the book. And it's just kind of nice to read through them. It's also nice that it's, they're kind of, they're rewritten a little bit to make them rhyme kind of in English. Uh-huh. And so it's, they, they really do appear as these songs that you would actually sing is what, what does she say? It's um, in, in the word, in, in the story world, it's the book of like old songs or poems that the shepherds would use. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's how she describes it. So yeah, I think that that's really interesting. So she is struck by this thorn and that's sort of the big thing in chapter one. And then we go into chapter two and she's, she wakes up the next morning and she's not afraid anymore. And she's so excited about this opportunity to go to the high places. Well, she knows the shepherd tells her in chapter one that, and this is part of her struggle with making sure Jesus is something I really want. He says, well, I, I'm not going to be with you the whole time, mm-hmm. right? I'll always be available for you to call upon, but you won't always see me. I won't be there, but I'm going to send you these two companions. He doesn't tell her who they are. You know, you don't find that out till chapter four. Yeah. We won't mention that yet. Nope. But, um, so it's, yeah. So she's also waiting. She's okay. Well, you know, she's wondering who the companions are and that kind of thing. Uh, the other thing that you, the last, the last thing where you move from chapter one into chapter two is this, the introduction of her, her terrible family. Right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the, right. The family of fearings is something that's really both. very obvious and explicit what they are and who they are. And also really just really interesting because you see that she's, she's one of them because she's afraid. Uh, So she's one of them in a different way. She's not Mm -hmm. a kind of, um, she's not like a positive emotion where it's, she's causing something like you see, you know, you have craven fear and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. uh, where she's afraid. It's also something that, easily tracks onto the life of the soul, right? Where after you have a kind of consolation, it's often easy to fall prey to one's fears. Mm-hmm. And so that's what occurs here in chapter two. Right. The fearing invasion. 
Actually, I remember when we got to chapter two, I was asking you for clarity on her family members and how this all worked. So do you want to extend on that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think once, once you read through it, I think it's relatively straightforward and it's, de- it's definitely, you definitely like have it down once you get to chapters like five and six, when they come back, Yes, you know, into her life after this initial introduction, but it's, and so, so okay. So t- to answer that question, I'll, I'm going to ask her for another question mm-hmm. because this is in chapter two, you have this character, Mrs. Valiant. And so Mrs. Valiant, see, you know, feels kind of, she, she seems very maternal mm-hmm. towards much afraid as her, you know, her, you know, little next door neighbor. And you read here, right. Miss, you know, Mrs. Valiant calls them the, the pack of fears. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that's very obvious that we're very, you know, very, uh, we can relate to a lot, I think. And so first of all, I, I don't know. Who was Mrs. Valiant? That's my question. I don't know if you had. Do you? So a sense I was thinking because everyone be, else seems like obvious, like who yeah, yeah, they're yeah. supposed to be, or this is an allegory for this and that and everything else. Yeah, I was wondering if it was like her guardian angel. Yeah, no, that's really interesting because that's a thought that I'd had too. Um, I like. I feel like I've come to the conclusion that it's not any one thing in particular, mm. right? The way the chief shepherd. Okay, that's obvious. I'm mm-hmm. much afraid. That's just one person, and everything else is typically a one to one thing. And so I, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out if Mrs. Valiant's supposed to be one thing or could be kind of anything in someone's life that any kind of outside, providentially arranged person or event. Oh, like a a good friendship or something. Or, yeah, yeah. So 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 or yeah. A my good book. Well, no. Yeah, so down the line, person. I think that that's probably true. Okay. I do think that, but I think your instinct of guardian angel is probably. The first thing I would say, mm-hmm. right? So, okay, what, what, what you know, what would, you know, who would be sent to the individual or the soul to c- console them, mm-hmm. right? In that way. Oh. And so an angel makes a lot of sense, right? But it seems like Mrs. Valiant might be like, a, could be a couple different things, right? Yeah. Tell me, tell me what else. <laughs> Keep talking. <laughs> Well, no, I, th- I think that's the first one that okay. I thought of, but I just wasn't sure if there was other other things. But it, so it could be a guardian angel, it could be anybody else, sort of providentially, who comes out of, and you know, in your 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 immediate circle, right? Who would be encouraging, comforting, consoling someone more wise, right? Someone mm. more experienced. Cause that's kind of how she, she treats it, right? She comes in and she says, and, and you can, you sort of see her inner, inner monologue mm-hmm. and Ms. Valiant says, well, I could scold her, but obviously I shouldn't do that. And so I'll comfort her. I'll console her. I'll take care of her. I'll go back next door and, you know, I'll be there if you need me kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting that you would say sort of like any sort of consolation, because maybe it's, maybe it's a friend helping you or encouraging you along mm-hmm. or yeah. in, in any kind of, signal grace though i too right mm. it could it could be just like a, a life event or life circumstances sort of so it seems like she's she's one of the few characters that can kind of have multiple reference sure right? just depending on 
your own experience, maybe. Yeah. Or your yeah. Own How you're going to relate to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I had for, I mean, chapter two is really short. That's all I had as well. And chapter three is really short too. We can kind of skip through that I really quickly. Am. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that I just wanted to mention about chapter three is that there's, so this is where she, she goes to sleep and she lays in bed and she's worried. And then obviously it's another one of those places where the, the song is used. Um, you know, one of the more famous passages from the canticle, I think it's the beginning of, cha- I think it's the beginning of chapter three, mm-hmm. maybe, um, right by night on my bed, I sought him who my soul loves, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I got up, I went about the city, I wandered around seeking who my soul loves, that kind of thing. And so she, she decides, okay, she's going to go out because she had at this point, the shepherd had come by in chapter two yeah. and called her right when she was essentially being, you know, held hostage mm-hmm. by her family of fears. And the shepherd had called, you know, walked by the window and sang the song and called her and she recognized that's the signal. That's what I'm waiting for. And the fee and her fears, right. had kind of held her back from yeah. following him. But now in the middle of the night, right. She's being consoled by Mrs. Valiant. She's alone. The fears aren't there. And she decides, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go figure this out, right? Maybe it's not too late. Yeah. I think there's something to be said for it being in the middle of the night, because we see that again in spirituality, there's a lot on going into the dark night and that being where we truly meet Christ. And that's, isn't that how, I mean, the ascent of Mount Carmel yes. begins. Yes. The dark night of the soul. Well, the, I mean, the, the poem, it's, it's something like, I, oh, I should have gotten it. I should have read it, but I, I think I can remember it. It's something about, um, you know, by night with my house being all stilled, right? So it's, it's again, this imagery yeah. of the still quiet of the night yeah. when everything has been sort of put to rest and everything outside is quiet, mm-hmm. which essentially is, again, it's this imagery of when everything around is quiet and silent then there can be kind of real movement inside. This is getting into contemplative prayer. So this is, this is why it's so like when everything on the outside, when everything, you know, exteriorly, this is why we need silence. We need to pray in silence. We need to meditate. And then contemplation comes in meditation. You know, once we reach that, um, point of silence interiorly where these movements take place. So this is sort of like just kind of bringing it to the ground here of like, what do I do to get to this night? You know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, we need silence first. Yeah. And then the other thing I think it's, you know, one of like so far, there's not much that you would want to imitate much afraid with. Right. However, who can't relate to her, honestly. Right. But one of the things that we should relate to her and we should want to imitate is that there's, she demonstrates a real confidence in the shepherd's mercy for her eventually. Mm, so it's yeah. why she goes out. She thinks, okay, she's kind of, she's anxious and she's despairing in, in kind of an initial way. Mm-hmm. When she goes out, she thinks like it, it might be too late. And she goes and she finds the shepherds. So the under shepherds, and they're like, oh, no, he's not here. He left. And she almost despairs. But she thinks, no, he he promised. He said he, he invited me. He called me for a reason. He said he would wait for me. I'm going to trust that that happens. And I'm going to like the one last place 
that he could be, that he might be, that he might be waiting is mm-hmm. here. And she goes and she finds him like, right, you know, right as the sunrise happens, you know, right at dawn, right. She meets him there. So there's, that's something I think that we need, right. Mm-hmm. That's even in those moments, right. In the dark at night or anxious, right. She trusts his mercy in being patient. Yes. And she's rewarded, right? She finds out that was, that was a good thing to do. It's a good thing to trust his confidence and his mercy because he was there for her. And his word mm-hmm. to trust his word. Like we can always rely on his word. Yeah. That's, that's all I have for chapter three, mm-hmm. but let's head into chapter four. Okay. So chapter four is probably my favorite chapter of this chunk. Yeah. Um, for a number of reasons. Let's hear it. I want to hear all the reasons. The number one reason is that chapter four is where you get she, okay. She, she and the shepherd, they go, they walk from where they meet, right? And we can talk about, you know, what happens as they walk. Cause that's important too. But once they get to the base of the, the mountain, essentially, right? Where mm-hmm. they're going to start this journey in this climb, that's where the two companions are waiting. And you get the, the reveal of who the companions actually are. And I think that's one of the most powerful moments of the book. I think when you were reading this to me, didn't I like burst into tears? Yeah, I did. Uh, I started crying. It's just like, ah. yeah. Cause it's yeah. so powerful. It's, it's such this, it's yeah. this real cathartic moment. Um, especially for anyone who has, you know, and even a little bit of experience in, life in general, right? <laughs> Trying to be, uh, you know, a, a faithful person and just deal with the world. Right. So when she, you know, he, she's first, she's disappointed to begin with already. Cause she's like, okay, well the shepherd's not going to go with me the whole time. That's mm-hmm. disappointing, but okay. He's, he's going to pick out two companions. He's going to send me the two companions. If the shepherd chooses them, I guess I can trust that and that'll be fine. Right. And so she, they get there to the base of the mountain and she's like, Oh, well they kind of they look a little scary, right? Cause they're, they're tall, they're veiled, and they don't say anything right away. She's like, well, who are they? I mean, cause, oh, well, they're, you know, they're, they're two of my best actually. Um, and they're great teachers. Mm. It's sorrow and suffering. I'm going to cry again. I know. <laughs> and yeah. there's, it's just, it's, yeah. you know, if you're reading it out loud, I think like, like we were doing it, there's a kind of, like I don't, the air is like a pregnant silence, right? The air kind yeah. of goes out of the room, and, mm-hmm. like, oh, and so it's this moment where she's just completely shocked at what's happening, and she, and I always, why couldn't you give me joy and peace, right? And like, if there's anything in these opening chapters that that you can relate to, it's it's that reaction, right? How could you give? How could you do this to me, right? Right? How could those be the ones? It's, it, that you send yeah. me with. Why couldn't you send me with joy and peace? Right. What's, what would be so hard about that? It just reminds me too of Teresa of Avila, how she's like, she said to the Lord, she was like, uh, you know, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few, you yeah. know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So Cause the funny. closer you get to Christ, the closer you get to Calvary. I mean, that's, that's just how this goes down, but it's not scary. That's the thing. And that's what this, I think this story shows is the sweetness in it. And it starts right away in chapter four. Like, I just want to go right to page 41 real fast because she talks about the wildflowers that they're walking on and how they are 
coming from the ground, but they, they have thorns all around them. Right. But like, she's noticing the flowers, like, but it's the flowers and the thorns. Yeah. So that's good. Okay. So we can come back to the companions, but that's, okay. that's good. It's good to go back because there are, right. They have really interesting conversations and this thing that happened along the way Yeah, where, right. These wildflowers you're talking about, she asks, she, she basically asks about them like, well, no one is ever out here to like appreciate them. Like what's the point of them? Mm. And I think that that's a really, I think everyone has asked that question before, or at least I have. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things where you think, well, okay, what's both good and bad, right? Like, well, what's the point of having this happen? Or what's the point of having that happen? Or like, look, look at all these beautiful flowers. No one's here to appreciate them. Like, what's, what's the point of these? And the shepherd points out, right? He basically says, you know, my father and I don't do anything that's pointless, right? Nothing, nothing is wasted. And he, and he uses that as an opportunity to teach much afraid that even in the greatest of his servants that he's called, right? Some of them have done great, amazing things, right? You think of the, think of, you know, your favorite Catherine of Siena, saint, right? And yeah. There's, like, there's all, you know, the canonized saints are the ones that we put up for veneration and for imitation because they've been heroically virtuous in all of these fantastic ways. Right. They're heroes. They're just heroes, you know, like for us. Yeah. And then he matches that with, and even those, right, typically some of their greatest accomplishments have been done in secret, right? I mean, we, like, so if you're using, you know, Catherine of Siena as an example, we know a lot about what she did and about her life, but there's, I mean, I think it would be silly to think that we, that there would be as good or possibly even greater things that are hidden from us now that yes. she did and accomplished right in sort of the secret of her own heart or in the silence of her own prayer life or her own conversations and things like that. I automatically once again, go to the Carmelites. When I thought of this, I, I went right to St. Therese and her, because she focused so much of this of, on this in her doctrine, in what she teaches with the little way, right? Um, with the being the little flower and and her, you know, being hidden in a Carmelite monastery for those years that she was alive. I mean, she died when she was twenty four, and um, and entered Carmel at what was it, fourteen fifteen, uh, something like that. And and she wanted to be this great missionary, you know, like that was her heart's longing. And then she went into Carmel and decided to be this, you know, like little flower. And that was like her whole prayer life is I want to be little. And it's amazing because, um, that's how the Carmelites are, right? They hide away. They, the discuss Carmelites, they go behind a grate and they live there and they pray and they fast. And it's solely like living these lives for God completely hidden from the world. Yeah. So that hiddenness is part of the lesson of the wildflowers in chapter four that yeah, they're here and there's a lot of them and they're beautiful. Um, but even if no one in the Valley is here to see them, the shepherd sees them, sees them. Yeah. And I think this is like a really cool thing to actually talk about for moms because like so much of our work and where we grow in holiness in the domestic church is so hidden. Like I'm not like Uh you go out into the world and work and I'm here with the children. And so much of my service and like my love for the children and my areas of growth and holiness are happening in such a hidden way. And I think this is just like such a reminder for moms that like you are seen 
by the Lord. Like the Lord sees every waking, every, you know, diaper changed, uh, you know, all of these things that you're, you know, you're doing throughout the day that is so totally hidden from the world is seen and recognized and loved by our Lord. Mm -hmm. Do you have thoughts on the water language? The water language. What page are we on? <laughs> I don't remember what okay. page it's actually on. But as she goes on, she, oh, she begins song. to realize, yeah. oh, like I'm, I don't understand what the water is saying or the rest of the creation as she goes through. She starts to understand and hear things. Um, yeah. And he, he points out, oh, it's because of the seed of love, right? That's why you're starting to understand and, you know, you'll learn more and more. But I thought that that was a really interesting detail, right? That technically, I guess, doesn't really move the plot along at all. So it's, it's kind of a tangential thing, but it's almost a more, it seems very fitting in some way. So I just didn't know if you had any. So I remember, yeah, I, I know where we are now. So if, for those following along, if you want to go to page 45, for instance, there's the water song and that's where we get into the water language. Um, I was puzzled by this, the water language. I did not have full conclusions on what exactly it meant. Did you? I'm not sure. Um, it seems like he tells her that it's the seed of love that has mm -hmm. given her this ability. Mm -hmm. So this gift that he's given her, right, with with the seed, the thorn, is what causes this, and why she hadn't done it before. So it's it to me, it almost it it signifies this this reality, this concept that with the gift of grace, with on on top of right, because like we said, she we meet her in the book before before she says yes to this this implanting of the seed of love in her heart she's already in the service of the chief shepherd so you know if we're tracking this on to kind of our basic sort of sacramental theology right she would have already been baptized and everything else but this is kind of a special movement in the soul where she's being brought further along mm -hmm. and so it's this invitation to move further along in the spiritual life that allows her to begin to recognize the beauty and logic and providence outside of kind of her own life, right? This ability to then recognize what's going on in creation itself, mm -hmm. which is also important, right? It's important to recognize that. And this, I mean, it's all through scripture too, right? This Psalm 19 is kind of the classic place to look this idea that creation and the law, right? So creation, right? And what, so what God does in nature reveals mm -hmm. God and then what God does explicitly by revealing himself, mm -hmm. obviously, reveals God. And so by, you know, following the shepherd, by making this journey, by beginning to allow herself to be kind of purged of things, even initially, automatically, just right away, kind of opens up the rest of what God has done, right? The rest of what the shepherd and his father has done in the rest of the world and kind of allows her to see the the beauty of what else is going on around her. And she'll only, right. She has this ability to understand kind of the languages of creation now, and she'll get better and better at it. Yes. We see that as we move Which along, cool. but we'll, we'll wait for that. But mm -hmm. um, another cool thing about this chapter that I really, really like is that they are conversing so much of the time. So this is like the initial, you know, movement to go further and the Lord and her are just talking and, and like laughing, like, it, you know, it talks about him like laughing and answering her questions and these sorts of things. And I think there is, you know, 
that stage, like it's a time of consolation, like, okay, we're moving forward. And I'm, you know, I've given you this seed of love and it's a thorn, right? And, and we're, we're getting closer and it's that, I don't know, like this sort of like bubbling of love and friendship. Yeah. So, and it's, and so like, and then, and then you finally get to the companions. Yes. Right. So it's, it's, I think that's a, a typical experience in the spiritual life is to have that initial consolation and that initial ease and freedom of prayer and how it's joyful. Right? And then things might begin to look a bit different once you, be- once you become acquainted with sorrow and suffering. Right. And it's after that, right. It's in that moment, right. It's in that meeting, that introduction that the shepherd then leaves right? and insists on her climbing alone with these companions that he's chosen for her. And I think it's significant that he calls them teachers too. It right? is. They're companions. He's very clear about that, right? They're going to go with you. They're going to help you. You're going to be holding their hands, mm-hmm. but he also calls them teachers too, right? They're the ones that are going to be hopefully, right? Hopefully she's going to be learning from. Yeah. But I actually think though, like through this initial process, like right here in chapter four, where she's at, it's actually, it's more than joyful because she's experiencing joy, even with sorrow and suffering later on. But like she, it's, it's happy. It's literally happy. Yeah, no, she's delighting in what's going on. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and they're delighting in each other. There's like this intimacy and, you know, he's saying how beautiful she is and how much he delights in her too. Like there's this exchange of like a very deepening love. And those are the things like for us, like on the ground, when we're experiencing those kinds of consolations in prayer, when we go into periods of desolation, into sorrow and suffering and these sorts of different um, trials in our prayer life that are actually like, it, you know, helping us move along. Um, it's like, we can turn, like we can hold on to those words that were given to our hearts, um, that he says to us in those times of desolation to get us through because everything that is said in those times of consolation, everything that he tells us is true. And I think we see that again and again. She trusts in his word. What do you, what's your impression of, so I think there's, there's a, there's a choice that the author makes, right? Of how to portray the two, how to portray sorrow and suffering. Uh And it seems significant in more than one way that they're portrayed as both. They, they, on the one hand, they, they speak the dialect of the mountains, the shepherd says, and it's why they're, they're mute. It's why they're silent, right? Because mm-hmm. even if they talked to, she wouldn't understand them. Uh, and the second thing is that they're veiled. Yeah. I know that's significant. Do you have thoughts? Um, initial thoughts. I'm not sure that I've, um, I don't know if I ever sort of, I can't remember what I initially thought when I read it a couple of years ago, but then on this reread, I have some initial thoughts and I'm sure as we are reading long again, it will become more clear and more obvious where I'll remember something, but at least at first, it seems like this, they're, they're portrayed this way, right? They're veiled. They speak this dialect of the mountains because essentially to, to portray the fact that much afraid can't, she can't recognize anything in them and she can't understand them. And so there's something about sorrow hmm. and suffering first where she can't see their faces, right? So there's something 
that is a little bit inhuman about that on the one hand. So there's something that she can't quite relate to yet. And there's, it's kind of mysterious and a little dark and a little scary. It made me think of till we have faces by CS Lewis where Uh like when you take away the face, it becomes the person becomes like scary and you know, yeah, right. Exactly. Because yeah. there's something about the face that mediates the soul in a particular kind of way. And so there's, so this, the fact that they're veiled presents a kind of ominous right, presence about them. Right. right. So you, she can't see their faces. So there's something that she can't quite tell. And then the fact that she can't, I think there's almost something more significant about the fact that they speak this other language because hopefully, and I think it's, I think the shepherd says this, right. As she goes along and as she, becomes more acquainted with them she'll begin to learn their dialect Mm -hmm. and so there's something really significant about Mm -hmm. saying you know as you become more acquainted with sorrow and suffering you can you you will only understand their presence in your life after you have experience with them right as life goes along then you'll be able to kind of speak the language of sorrow and suffering because those are not two things that human beings want to be fluent with right right they're they're terrified they're she's she's, she's struck by them for a reason right because there's and i think this is another reason why another reason why i think this is such a catholic book so this portrayal of how sorrow and suffering are portrayed is portrayed in a way that the catholic tradition treats them and in my opinion, I mean, I, d- I don't think there is another worldview that deals with suffering and evil the way that the Catholic one does. And so this idea that sorrow and suffering are going to be her companions and then over time you'll speak their language, I think is really important because we don't want to be familiar. We don't want to be on speaking terms with sorrow, sorrow and, suffering and suffering in our own lives on their own because those are bad things. But when seen as a means to an end, however, because they're given to us, right? It's when we receive them. It's when much afraid receives them and allows herself to be led by them, right? She didn't go out and choose them herself. Right. They come to her, right? They're chosen for her. And so she needs to learn to receive them. And once she does that over time, hopefully the shepherd tells her, right? She'll, be taught by them. She'll learn to speak their language. Yes. And, and again, it's just a reminder, you know, we can't, you know, in her case, she can't ascend to the high mountains, um, without it in the same sense, you know, we can't have the resurrection without the cross. So we need, we need to actually enter into the cross before we can experience the resurrection fully. Like this is part of intimately knowing Christ and walking with him in his most vulnerable moment in his life on earth, in his, you know, ascent up, up the mountain, up Calvary. To the high places. Yeah. Um, And it reminds me also of like, you know, the transfiguration, you know, scripture tells us it happened, you know, a week before, right. It was like about a week before he went to um, Jerusalem and, died. And it it was showing, you know, Peter, James, and John that like his glory before the scandal of the cross. So they could hold on to that and know that this is the end. 
of the cross. You know, like the end is this resurrection, is the glory, is the ascent, is the union, is the bridal nature of like our, you know, the, the union is like the bridal nature of like the soul with God, right? But we can't, we can't go without it. We can't go up. And this is, so she's so afraid. This is where a lot of people turn around and they say, nope, I don't like that. This is where people halt and say, I will keep you right here, Lord, right here. You know, when he's calling us to enter into this and trust him and trust his word and trust the consolations that were just given in this, because he doesn't leave people desolate and, you know, with sorrow and suffering, we see, we see, you know, we're going to stop in a minute because we'll get to chapter five, but, but just like hinting on the future here. There is joy. There mm-hmm. is joy when you suffer and are sorrowful with Christ and peace. All of that comes with it. Yeah. Cause she, at this point, I mean, she, she could turn back. She yeah. could go back to the Valley. I mean, she had a, it seems like a relatively uneventful life in the Valley and in his service already. She lived with her friends and et cetera. She could turn back, but she doesn't. I mean, so again, another, another feather in much afraid's cap there that she continues on. All right. Anything else? Any other questions or anything else from the first four chapters? I think this ends, uh, chapters one through four. This was great. I hope everyone enjoyed it and please do leave, um, comments if you, if you have any, um, all right, well, let's take a break and then we'll come back and we'll do chapters five through eight. Sounds great. All right. Okay, so we're going to move on to the next four chapters for this week. So chapters five, six, seven, and eight. When we started reading this, when you started reading this to me, I started laughing right away because it was like, of course, the first problem is going to be pride, right? Of course. So did you have um, sort of any strong takeaways from this chapter? Well, I just, I like the dynamic of how you get, you go back to the, right. She's, she's gone. She makes the trip. The family realizes, and they have like a, you know, little war council and they figure out, okay, well, how are we going to get her back? Because I think, I think it's in this chapter, basically something, you know, something is said to the effect of, well, I mean, none of us really want to go follow the shepherd. Um, so that, that's not quite attractive, but it's intolerable that some, one of us should. So we don't really care about, uh, following you we're not jealous of you as oh we want to go do that too but we want to pull you back to us right and i think that that's a typical experience in more than one way right because because so far it has seems like okay the the pack of fearings her fearing relatives have just been analogs for normal sort of individual fears of the soul right that the individual could encounter within themselves right but here you're seeing that there's something a little more complex about these characters where they're both fears that the individual soul encounters and sort of fears and vices and temptations that you would encounter within yourself. But there's also a sense in which there's something a little added here too, because there's also a sense in which when, and and I'm sure that I'm sure that people out here have, you know, I'm sure people listening have experienced this before when you decide to commit yourself to something 
or to further your spiritual life or become more serious or more pious. A lot of the times you might have family or friends who don't understand that, right? And even if they don't want to follow you, right, and kind of want to keep the status quo. So there's also this sense in which she's abandoning kind of this, she's abandoning her family in this too. Mm -hmm. And so there's kind of multiple levels going on where she's encountering her fears as in something interior within herself, but also on the outside, right? Because there's, you know, there's, you know, sometimes going to be people in your life that want to kind of keep you where you are or who are like, oh, we can't let that happen. Or, you know, what, why did so-and-so get all, you know, high and mighty and all pious and that kind of Don't thing? Don't change right in that way. That makes uh -huh. me uncomfortable. Yeah. So I think it's funny that they have this little war council where they figure out, okay, well, how are we going to get her back? And I guess we'll send pride because he's, He's very confident. He's very attractive. He's charming. And because he's pride, he'll never, you know, he'll never give up. He'll never admit that he's been defeated. He's too proud for that. And so he will definitely get the job done. Right. And they send him off. I think there are numerous levels though, because like you can look at this on the ground as, you know, people who maybe are trying to hold you back, but it, you can also look at it as spiritual warfare too. Like how, you know, the demons are also fighting for your soul as well and sneaking in in various ways to tempt tempt us away from this journey um and pride being the most significant one i mean it's the root of all sin so it's of course it starts with pride yeah and she in in the novel in the novel it's clearly pointed out right that's pride comes along and finds her at a point where the path had become a little smoother Mm -hmm. And she'd let go, she'd let go of the grip of sorrow and suffering. And so she kind of freed up her hands. And so it's, it's kind of at a moment where, okay, I don't, maybe don't need so much help anymore or at this particular moment. And then. Right. And he takes her hand. Yeah. And uh -huh. he takes her hand. Yeah. That's so Yeah. Funny. Yeah. Um, and, and she can't get rid of it that easy. She can't really, um, no, she doesn't, but she has the wherewithal, right? She, she realized it's, it's funny cause she, she recognizes quickly or she's, she's a quick learner and she immediately cries out for the shepherd who had said, even though I won't be there, right? Communication works different on the mountain. Even if I'm not there, I'll be able to hear you no matter what. Right. And so she calls out cause she's terrified in that moment and realizes what's happening. And then she's, she's this inner vision of the shepherd's face mm -hmm. and then realizes in that moment she can call out to him. And he appears right right next to her right? and basically just puts him to flight immediately. Right. Wasn't it with a stone too? Did Was that how like he threw? Oh, no, that's later. Oh, okay. Sorry. That's what she does later on. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he yeah. appears. I think he just as the shepherd crook. Yeah. Kind of smacks him right in the hand. Yeah, yeah. And then he kind of slinks away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so she seems, she she feels kind of, you know, she feels just shame at what had happened, right? What she allowed herself to do. So she feels shame at that. But there's also a sense in which you move into chapter, um, was it chapter six? And she realizes in for that, you know, first few lines, that first paragraph or two, right? So she, she follows sorrow and suffering a little more, uh, pliantly after that experience where she, okay, like I let pride take my hand pretty quickly. Right. Uh, so I, I probably shouldn't, you know, probably she's on the lookout for that now. What I think is really interesting. So ending this chapter on page 65 
it talks about the result of her allowing pride to take her hand and how it was the first time that she started really limping and struggling again on the mountain to go. And it just reminded me how the effects of sin on us, like we have these natural consequences of what it does to us in our spiritual life. Um, when we like allow these things in, um, that like we have to recover from them. We need a recovery period from choosing sin. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah, that's something we haven't really talked about so far, I guess the, the, the sort of the, the idea or the concept of what kind of theology of nature and grace that you're seeing at work in the narrative. And it seems like it's again, like an extremely Catholic vision of the world or right? this idea that, um, you know, much afraid is not, she's not a paraplegic where she can't move at all. Mm-hmm. Right. She's not completely crippled, but she's, she's crippled enough where she limps when she walks. So there's clearly a wound, something that's been something that's not the way it should be in her. Mm-hmm. Right. Even though she can kind of limp along and get around, but she can't be the way that she should be. Right? She's not fully healthy. And so as we go along, and you even see it here in these chapters, she begins to walk a little better. At later at some point. And so this idea that, that, that you're talking about this, this recovery or this healing, right? Cause that's, that's what grace is meant to do. Yes. Cause yeah. grace both, we, we tend to think, we tend to think sometimes, I think the average person tends to think about grace if they think about grace at all. Cause it's kind of a nebulous concept. Yeah. I wonder if, you, if we if talk say, about like, it more. Well, what is grace? Yeah. Well, what is grace? Cause we're right. like academic, like we're, I wonder if academics talk about it more. Um, and so like maybe in our circles, like we've talked about it more, but, it's, but usually like regular, I wonder when the last, I mean, when's the last homily anyone heard about grace? I'm not right. sure. I don't know. I would kind of I'd be kind of curious to hear from people like when the last time you heard like a homily about grace or what it does or what it is, that kind of thing. But it yeah. seems to me like the average person, if you ask them, well, what is grace? will think about, oh, it's, you know, it's something God gives you. And then for what reason it could, it could be all kinds of things, but there's two different kinds. There's two grace is given for two reasons. And it's not just, Right. To get you to heaven. Right. Cause it's kind of like, Oh, grace saves you. And then you, you know, that's how you get to heaven. Right. And that's right. kind of the trajectory. Right. And so it's, it's talked about a lot in its elevating capacity. Right. Grace is some of the supernatural gift and it's what allows you to love God and get to heaven. And that's what grace does. Mm-hmm. But grace is a lot more than that. Cause there's grace heals and elevates because we have a wounded nature and because of original sin, we're wounded. Right. And we, because of original sin, we have what's called concupiscence, which means that we tend to make bad choices. Right. And we do, we tend to choose, you know, sinful things because of our wounded nature. And so what grace does is it heals our nature so that we can function the way that we should have from the beginning. Fully alive. Yeah. And it elevates. So not only heals our nature and allows us to act and function and make choices the way that we're supposed to be able to, but then it also elevates, right? It also gives us these supernatural 
abilities as well. Right? Mm-hmm. If we talk about supernatural faith, open love and all of these other things, but yeah, what you were talking about, that idea of her seeing her begin to recognize certain things or where she recognizes, Oh, this was, this was where pride came in. And so I need to be more wary of that. And as we get along in six, seven and eight, and she begins to walk a little more confidently and with a little more ability where her limp isn't as noticeable, right? You begin to see her heal already Mm -hmm. on this journey. And we're in this purgative stage, I think. Yes. Yes. And she's walking like as she's starting to gain strength again, it's not walking in pride that she gains the strength. It's walking in a holy confidence that she's gaining the strength. A little, just a little on the ground story. A friend and I always have for years now have talked about ourselves as like the broken little lambs that like Christ has to carry and how we have like these broken legs. I hope she's listening, but anyways, like these, these broken little legs, um, and staying in that state and being, and we call each other like the broken little lamb or like, um, and, and staying in that state of neediness of Christ, um, in that state of weakness in that way. Now this is different in that it's about like the healing of our nature, but I just wanted to like mention that because it's, it's interesting to me too, that after pride, she gets weak again as like a reminder to sort of stay like stay in that state you know what i mean and let and then let the lord heal you um don't try to do it yourself you know and and that's where like the pride i think comes in of i'm gonna do it myself and i'm gonna walk and i'm i'm gonna take pride by the hand and not take my companions by the hand Mm -hmm. um and that's when it gets tricky again but but staying weak and letting god then heal in his time and in his way, which might not feel so great sometimes. So share your reaction to chapter six. So chapter six is when they write, it's right after pride. She's kind of hobbled again. She realizes how difficult it is to walk. And then they turn a corner and they see the desert and she says, you know, oh, well, no, that's not the way I'm supposed to go to the high places, right? The shepherd mm-hmm. said that we were going to the high places and that's the opposite direction and it's down and it's a desert. So that's definitely the wrong way. That's a contradiction of what I was promised. So that definitely can't be the way. And then the shepherd shows up immediately and says, no, it's just postponement. Right? That's the way. That's the path. So let's go. Yeah. This was my favorite chapter that we've read so far. Oh, that's funny. I think it is incredibly powerful um, and shows just how adventurous this story gets and deep it gets. I mean, you said that's funny. What? Is it yours or no? Not so much. Well, of uh, so I think of I think of this section. Right? So chapter four, right, of the first section, I think was my favorite. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, this is this is probably my favorite chapter of, of this second section too, because this is also where you get the first altar that's built too. Yeah. Right. And I think that's something when we were reading it through and we we're reading it today that I had forgotten about. And I didn't remember that that was part of the story. Mm. And then out of nowhere, it's like, okay, she, she builds the altar. And I thought, oh, okay, I forgot about that. That's, that's I loved that too. Yeah, uh-huh. And it's like fire burns up 
these things in her. And that's what we all need. That's the purgation. That's the process of, you know, putting something on the altar and letting it burn to crisp, letting it be gone. Yeah. Cause she builds them. Cause I think to so read up through chapter eight, does she, there's at least three or four, I think that she builds yeah. along the way in these chapters and it's right. She, she builds them and whenever there's some kind of significant event or something significant that she, she sees or is told or understands and she, she builds another altar along the way. Yeah. And it's just, it's super interesting because there's in one sense, it's a kind of reimagine. It's like an imaginative and creative, um, mining of the Abraham story too. Cause that's what Abraham does. Mm-hmm. Right? When God calls Abraham out and says, I'm, you know, go where I send you, he builds altars all along the way through his trip through the Holy land, kind of consecrating the Holy land on his way to eat down south right right um before israel gets there which is kind of a really interesting thing to think about that abraham consecrates the promised land by building altars yep. long before israel even gets there yep which is really interesting yeah but then in if we're tracking this onto the spiritual life right this idea that we would build our own altars in the sense that we there are there are moments where we have clear I mean, hopefully have clear moments of recognition that something has to be sacrificed. Yes. Yes. And offered up. Yes. And as in, in here, I think for the first couple of times, it's, it's her own will. Yeah. We're told that she yeah. has to sacrifice, she has to right? She lays her, her own will. will. She lays her rebelling will on the altar and it's burned up. The other significant thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. The other really significant thing about this is, okay, we just had an encounter with pride and now she descends, right? So before the ascent, you must descend, go lower, lower, lower. And, and so this is, I think, incredibly important. And this is another error. I think that easily happens in the interior life where we want so badly to ascend quickly that we don't enter into this part into Egypt. And this is, this is where, like, I think a lot of us, like we get to this point and we're like, I don't want that. No, I don't want to go there. I see where you're, where you're going with this Lord. Like, I don't want that. This is not great. And I think all of us can relate to some point in our life where it's like the Lord is asking us to do something. And we're like, no, 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 wait. I don't think so. Right. Like you don't actually want that. Right. And, and he is calling us to this and it's this death to self and death to our own will, this descent, this humiliation, um, and going into exile, going into Egypt, the desert place too, I think was like a theme that like, I think all of us can relate to at one point or another in our spiritual life where it's dry. We're praying and it's dry and we're praying and it's dry because it's the desert. Yeah. And it's significant. I think that this is, this is one of the times that the shepherd is actually with her and there on the journey. Right. So as in her descent mm-hmm. into the desert or she leans on him, right. She kind of relies on his strength and not so much the strength and the guidance of, of sorrow and suffering. Um, and so I'm not, I mean, I'm not quite sure again, we shouldn't try and, you know, it's, it's not always like a one-to-one. It's not always very clear, but it's at least clear that in this descent, she's relying on his strength and his more immediate and direct guidance 
And as you say, right, it's one of the things that's most powerful in this chapter is that he explains to her, right, you know, all of my servants have gone this way, right? I've sent all of them down into the desert from the very beginning. And so on the one hand, this isn't anything new, right? You're not experiencing some horrible dark thing that no one else has, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of, you know, it's not, you know, it's not misery loves company, but at the same time, it's, you know, that they've all gone this way, right? This is, this is something that has been done for many, many times before you. And so you're, you're one of them. And so I think that that's kind of a really, that's a really significant thing. And as you say, right, it's this, it's both very obvious in the Carmelite spirituality of Therese and St. Teresa and John of the Cross, right? This idea of going into the desert. Yes. Right. Therese, I think, uses that language specific explicitly, right? About the, you know, going into the desert of Carmel. Right. That's right? what Carmel is known to be, the yeah. desert. Yes. And it's because and it's because the Carmelites have an extremely biblical theology yeah. of their spirituality, because this is exactly what the prophet Hosea tells, right? Which is, you know, Hosea is the oldest of the prophets, right? So from the very beginning, this imagery in Hosea chapter, chapter two, I think, where God tells Hosea, there's going to be a time where I will, I will woo Israel again. And I'm, you know, I'll espouse them to me again. And the, you know, he says, you know, I'm going to do it in the desert, right? I'll call them back into the wilderness. Right. And so there's this very, very biblical view of the wilderness wandering period as one both of purgation and simultaneously as a kind of honeymoon period after the wedding at Sinai, where mm. Israel's called into the desert and it's just Israel and God. And so the pro- oh, so Hosea and the prophets yeah. see this as you know, it's two sides of the same coin mm-hmm. where they're led into the wilderness because of their sin. Mm-hmm. And so it's a time of purgation and suffering. And simultaneously, it's also viewed as the place where the betrothal and this kind of really intimate union between Israel and God happens. And so it's why Hosea is able to give us this imagery as well. Right In the new covenant, again, he'll call them back into the desert. And so this idea of being called into the desert, again, Christ recapitulates this in himself too, right? What does he do after the baptism? Before the public ministry, he's driven into the wilderness mm-hmm. by the days. spirit. Yeah. 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 Um, on page 74, the shepherd says, fear not. And I thought that was like a really big thing too, is that during this period, you know, even though, you know, everything, like you said, this is the honeymoon period and everything, it doesn't look like that. So like when you're going up to the desert, you're like, why are we going here? Uh I don't want to, you know, it doesn't look like that. And so in, in this point, like in the spiritual life, this is where a deep trust like uh, needs to come in where we're remembering God's word, right. That he spoke to our hearts um, and remembering the song of songs, you know, and remembering and, and then hearing him say, you know, fear not and believing that he is there and guiding the way, even though it doesn't look like the way we think it should, we, we don't think it's the right direction. Right. And so there's going to be a sort of battle within us, you know, reaching this point in the spiritual life, I think 
um, of saying like, we want it to go in a different direction, but in the end, uh, saying not my will, your will be done. And that having like that act right there resulting in so much beauty and goodness to come and a blooming that we're going to see later on. And that's exactly what happens at the end of this chapter. Yeah. Because she finds the golden flower. I, nothing I else loved grows. this. Right? Nothing else grows. Yeah. She wanders off by herself one time, sort of right before they leave. And she finds, she finds the plant with the golden flower who tells her its name is acceptance with joy. Yes. And so she of plucks suffering it. and sorrows. <laughs> yeah. And she plucks it and it's essentially kind of rewording of, you know, of, of the words of Mary in the gospel mm -hmm. where she says, you know, behold thy handmaid in acceptance with joy. And she, again, and that's another altar moment where she plucks the flower, right? Creates the altar, picks up the stone. She keeps collecting these stones, which is also, right. which is really interesting. Um, I pr that will pay off at the end of the novel. I can't wait to yeah, see. It's really interesting yeah. because I just remembered, Oh yeah, there's, there's something that happens with all these little stones. She picks up. I was wondering what's yeah, going to happen. So, yeah, pay attention to that. It's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Okay. So chapter seven. Yeah. On the shores of loneliness. Whew, this was intense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's again, it's it's difficult to really. I mean, everyone's so one of the things that can be a little confusing, I think, about the the church's teaching, or it was really not even technically official teaching. I guess it's just more of the you just find it in all the saints, right? This idea of the three ages or the three stages of the spiritual life is mm -hmm. that they don't move from, you know, one to two to three in this kind of very easy way, right? It's let's do all the purgative stuff. And then I get to the illuminative stage and I don't have to deal with all the purgative stuff anymore at all. It's, it's more about, it's why I think Garagu's language of the three ages works a lot better because you can experience them sometimes simultaneously. You can go back and forth between them. Cause I think you could, you could make an argument that in the desert, she finally is beginning to reach at least a sort of the initial steps of the illuminative stage where she's, she's seeing things with new eyes. She's learning, right. She's begun to learn the water language and the language of the birds, right. She's been told all of these things by the shepherd. She's beginning to see things sort of with clearer eyes. So she's been illuminated in this kind of way because she's been purged. And yet at the same time, right, right after this desert, you think, okay, well, after the desert, things will be a little better. But after the desert, you just get to the long sandy beach of loneliness. Right. Which is a really interesting image, I think, to imagine in your head. Because obviously in the desert, you imagine no water, right? But then you move from, from the desert to the water. beach, essentially. You just, she's wandering along the edge of the beach. She's wandering along the shore. Mm -hmm. And she talks about this, this real loneliness that she never felt before at all. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also a typical experience in, in the spiritual life, right? That she feels misunderstood and she feels lonely, right? Mm -hmm. But she's the only one there. And I think that that's a stage most people I imagine would go through. Yes, absolutely. I think I was at a loss for words at this chapter. Um, it really struck me yeah, you so, like somewhere kind of... deep, like it, it, it hit deep. <laughs> well, you almost have to, I mean, not to, not to use, I mean, I guess to use the imagery of, of the chapter itself, you kind of have to let it hit you like a wave and kind of like, which wash over you. Right. Cause it is a very kind of, it's 
you know, it's, she does a really good job in this chapter of conveying this feeling of loneliness, but it's also here in this where the other family members show up too. So that's right? what Which I, is also I so funny. was going to so say funny. that. Yeah. Yeah. And these, this is like really sneaky. So like you get to this point and it's like, okay, resentment, bitterness, and self pity come in. Whoa. Okay. So this is relatable. <laughs> uh-huh. This is relatable. Yeah, and pride along with them. Right. So it's like you can never be I guess like for me I was thinking like you're never in a complete safe space from this, you know, on earth. Uh-huh. Because it's always a battle for your soul on earth. You're not just saved. You know what I mean? Like like we're always fighting a battle. Every day has to be our yes. Every day has to be choosing Christ. Mm-hmm. And and so because we have the devil is lurking, you know, and, and these things are, you know, the the world, the flesh and the devil yeah. is after our souls. And and so it's here and and she's gonna learn, right? I, I mean, I'm assuming I haven't read the whole book. So I, I'm reading along with all you new readers. Um, but she's she has to she's going to learn like how to sort of put up those boundaries and have the good habits and, um, and like mm-hmm. uh, figure out like her safe, safe zone, like how to like cling to Christ in these moments of temptation. Um, but also to be discerning of spirits, be discerning of these things because they're sneaky. Yeah. And this is, the, this is, this is the moment where the dialogue I think is just really, is really creative because it, it almost reminds me of for anyone who's read, um, oh, what is it? See, I'm so tired. My brain's not working. Uh, Lewis's, what's the book? Uh, Screwtape Letters. That's yeah, what it yeah, is, yeah. right? So it's this, yeah. right? Uh, Screwtape Letters is obviously a whole book of, um, right? The two demons writing back and forth, trying to figure out how to, you know, mess with this guy's life, right? How to ruin this guy's life and lead him down the wrong path. And there's a sense in which the voices and what they say to her reminded me a lot of that. Because mm-hmm. right? there's a lot of real, there's a lot of things that I think that are really, relatable or that, you know, are easily thought of, right? Especially, I mean, I think, I think what, you know, what bitterness tells her, right? He bitterness, you know, tries, tries to waylay her and basically tells her, you know, sooner or later, the shepherd's going to put you on a cross too, and he's going to abandon you. Yes. And so that's, what's the point? Like, what are you even doing? Right. There's no way this is going to work out. The promises are going to be broken. And one of these days you're going to end up on a cross and you're going to be abandoned. And so just come home. Right. And what do you say to that when St. Peter was put on a cross and you know, like this is actually, and there's like all the, the martyrs <coughs> and like the Holy, you know, in our church and our early church fathers and our, right. you know, all of this, all these martyrs. And it's like, well, in the early stages you- of the spiritual life, that's, that's a real temptation, right? Cause that's, that's not something you want, right? She hasn't made, she doesn't speak suffering and sorrows language yet. Yeah. It's still something she's struggling to do. And so it's still something that's a genuine temptation if she's presented with this. Right. But the idea is the thing that the lie in this is she will never be abandoned. She will never be abandoned. And this is, I think, how the devil works. And this is like something else that I think it's like a, this is a discerning of spirits chapter. Like that's what I think this lesson is mainly is a lot of times with these things, it's just slightly off. It's just slightly off. So maybe you will die for Christ. Maybe that would be something you are called to do. 
but you are not abandoned. Mm -hmm. Maybe you will be called to hard things. Maybe you will experience great suffering, but you are not abandoned. Maybe you will have extreme sorrow, but you are not abandoned. Like this is, it's, see, it's slightly off. And that's what I think the devil does. And that's where discernment of spirits comes in. Because a lot of times with these things, it's mostly true and then slightly off. And at this point, much afraid has been transformed enough where this is the moment she sort of puts her back to the wall and picks up the rocks and chucks them and drives them away. Yes. So she's able initially to drive them off on her own. And then later on, right, she encounters them again when she's alone. Again, she wanders off from sorrow and suffering, kind of explores on her own. Right. And then she's cornered by pride. And that's the moment she thinks, okay, well, this is the second time I'm going to actually call on the shepherd. And it's one, one of the funnier, I think, one of the funnier moments of not just the chapter of but what we've read so far, where the shepherd shows off and shows up and, and chucks pride off the cliff into the ocean. And much afraid, is like quite happy about this. And she, oh, do you think he's finally dead? And the shepherd goes, no, he'll, he'll be fine. He'll be back. You know, yeah, yeah, just yeah. keep your eye out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. It is funny. He said, no, it's, it's most unlikely. <laughs> so, and that's like another lesson to keep in mind that I think is a very true lesson yeah, uh-huh. that this author hits on is, is that pride will always try to sneak back in no matter how holy one gets like yep. pride will always be lurking and trying to take over Can't and kill just, pride for good. Right. I, so you back. have to like, we constantly have to be fighting pride, mm-hmm. but also just have our heads up with it and, and accept periods of humiliation and accept periods of like weakness, sickness, suffering, like all these things that humble us, right. Or like misunderstanding people, not understanding us or people maybe being, you know, like mean in some way or whatever it is, like all of those things are for the good of our souls so that we don't become prideful because that's our biggest problem as people. Mm-hmm. Chapter, right, chapter eight. eight. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Okay. So in chapter eight, she's again, she encounters bitterness because she leaves sorrow and suffering behind and right? she, she's starting to walk better, mm-hmm. right? There's times where it feels like she's, you know, I've never been sick or lame at all. Right. So she's beginning to see like the movement of grace in the soul, right? So right. she's, she's beginning healing. to, right? Yeah, she's moving freely, right? That's that's one of the. That's Can one I of say the, something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, she's healing through sorrow and suffering. Yeah, this is, but I think this is profound. She is healing through sorrow and suffering. My hands are like out, like stretched wide right now. No one can see me. I like. I think this is very profound. Mm-hmm. But you also see what what the healing power of this actually does because it it allows her to to move freely right it allows her to yeah. walk and run ahead now of course she gets into a little trouble by running ahead because she encounters bitterness again but she doesn't get in trouble the way that she had before because there's also we've been talking about how she's also moving into this illuminative stage she she has i think one of the one of her first really profound thoughts where she begins, she thinks not of herself, maybe for the first time. And she thinks about what it would be like to be an enemy of the shepherd. And she like feels the sorrow mm. for not herself, right? Mm-hmm. She'd been sorrowful, sorrowful about herself, right? She'd been pitying herself. Oh, things are so hard, etc. all this mm-hmm. point. But she finally reaches this moment where she begins to think of what it would be like to be an enemy of the shepherd. And she thinks, oh, it must be really terrible 
to be an enemy of the shepherd because nothing will ever really work out if you're an enemy of the shepherd, right? It right. Must, be, must be dreadful, right? To always have your prey snatched away from you because the shepherd is always going to be there to protect the sheep, right? She thinks, and she, it's, it's, and also, this is the confidence. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah. She, and she thinks, you know, how, how frustrated it must be to see a silly little weakling like me be set up into the high place. Yeah. Right. And to not be able to get at me. Right. It's right. really interesting. I think that that moment for me was just so relatable in mm-hmm. so many ways too, of being like, Ugh, like how, you know, how can he love me so much when I'm so weak and all of these things. And, and then it's like, Oh, this is powerful, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And once again, it happens after, right? This recognition happens very shortly after the building of another altar, right? The shepherd says, you know, build another altar, offer me your whole will as yeah. a Holocaust, right? Offer me your whole will as a whole burnt offering. And she agrees. She does. She builds the altar. She lays it down. She picks up the stone that's left afterwards and continues on her way. And she is able to rebuff, you know, her, was it bitterness in this, uh, in this chapter? I think was she's it able to resentment too. I, maybe, or was it maybe just both? Bitterness? I think it might, might be just bitterness, but I don't remember, but e- either way, she's able to rebuff them very quickly. And she has this recognition. And then right afterwards she gets to the woods. Right. right. And here's the thing that was really amazing to me about the end of this chapter is she renounces her will. So she dies to it. She puts it on the altar and it's sacrificed. And then he says, now I'm going to show you what I will do. Mm-hmm. So it had to, she had to reach the point where she died to her own will for him to show her what he will do. Like, that's so exciting. Like, it's like, what's next? No, a hundred percent. And then she gets to the woods and it's springtime. She recognizes, she looks down at the seed of love in her heart and she realizes it's begun to take root and sprout yeah. and grow. Right. So there's real growth in her heart, right? There's real life there. And then I also think one of the things she, he talks about the altar right? the mm-hmm. altars that she builds. And there's the, the line about, you know, building the altar with whatever's around, I think is also a really significant idea right this this thing you know that's we're we're called to we're called to offer what we have mm. mhm that that so that reminds me right away of like that scripture passage of the old woman who just like offers everything she has and it's like barely anything mm-hmm. you know yeah wow yeah yeah she says as you've noticed altars are built of whatever materials lie close at hand at the time right and so there's a sense in which there has to be an acceptance of what's been given to you and what you have in the moment. Right. And there's again, right here in Lent, right. There's a sense in which you could think, okay, I'm going to pick all of these different sacrifices and I'm going to offer this. I'm going to offer that. I'm going to give up this, 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 and this, and Mm -hmm. those can all be really good things. Half the time though, right. Lent's going to be about offering up and sacrificing what you're forced to, right. We've been sick since Lent started. Yep. It's not something I'm going to be sick for Lent. I'm going to offer that up. Right. That's, that was not my plan. Right. But it's what happened. And so I can either suffer willingly and offer up my own suffering, mm-hmm. or I can be bitter and resentful about it and pity myself. Oh, yeah. Poor me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I, just, I don't know. I, I like that line about I love that too. Being yeah. Built of what's around. Yeah. It's, it's really powerful because mm-hmm. it, it actually just puts into place like what our everyday life should look like and saying, 
I don't like this particular circumstance, or this is really hard, or these relationships are hard, or these, like, there are struggles I'm going through, and I'm going to actually offer this to the Lord. Mm-hmm. What's right in front of me, the trials that I face today, um, whatever it might be that we individually have, we can give him and offer it, offer it up. Yeah. And that's chapter eight. That's chapter eight. So we're at the end. All right. So we finished our special double episode and I didn't lose my voice the whole time. So very good. Um, Yeah. So if you made it this far, thanks for listening. Next week, we'll be out with the next four chapters. Can't wait. Talk to you then. All right. That's the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider giving us a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening. Until next time.